Here's an excerpt from a recent Investing Experts conversation. Welcome back to Investing Experts. My name is Rena Sherbel. Excited to talk to Alex King today from Sestrian Capital Research, who runs the investing group Growth Investor Pro. We get into stocks, ETFs, a lot about the tech sector and how investors should be looking at the markets and stocks in general. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets. Come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. So how would you synthesize the kind of, are there a kind of tech stock that makes sense at this point in the cycle or is it company specific? Well, um, so, so I think it all depends on your time frame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're putting together a retirement portfolio now and you're, you know, 30 and you're planning to invest regularly over the course of the next you know, 30 years, does it make sense to be buying small allocations of Microsoft stock now at its all-time high? Probably it does. I mean, you know, no one knows the future, but but probably buying little bits now and continuing to buy it over the next 30 years probably isn't a bad idea. Um, if you're trying to make money next week with a highly levered um, option portfolio, it, is buying Microsoft calls now a great idea? Probably not. So I think the answer is, you know, to be a bit unhelpful, it depends. The the, the method that, that we use for, for what it's worth is we let's assume we filter out good and bad business. And, and of course, you can make money with stocks that are issued by bad businesses. Of course you can, but let's focus on the, the good quality companies. So let's say we tick the box and say good company, as in it's growing quickly. The growth is predictable, measured by you know the growth in uh, remaining, or, remaining performance obligation, the order book, growth in deferred revenue, the prepaid um, orders, uh, gross margins are holding up nicely, uh, cash flow margins are holding up nicely, the balance sheet's solid, all those things. Let's assume we've ticked that away and we said, okay, good company. We then look at, okay, if your time frame is, let's say, you know, w- weeks or months for the sake of argument, we, we look at a technical chart. Now, our own preferred method, as anyone knows who reads our stuff, is that we use a combination of um, Elliott waves, Fibonacci uh, levels, and something called the Wyckoff cycle. So if that all sounds complicated, it isn't really. It's the names are designed to make it sound complicated and put people off, but 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 they're not. They're really easy. So, you know, the Elliott wave system is just an it's it's a way of tracking emotion. You know, the idea is that we get happy in you know, five waves up, let's say. So happy, bit more sad, very happy, a bit more sad, very happy, and then we've ended our happy cycle. And then we get sad in three steps down. So very sad, a bit happier, very sad. Right. So five waves up, three waves down. And that repeating motif you can find time and time and time again in, in highly liquid stocks and uh, and ETFs and indices. It's much harder in small stocks that are not well traded, but liquid stocks, you can see that emotional pattern. That's all it is, time and again. And then we look at, we use Fibonacci levels. That sounds really uh, esoteric. It isn't. It's just a way of measuring the amplitude of the waves we just talked about. So is that a big wave up? If so, it's lots of extensions. Is it a big drop? It's a big retracement. And there are fairly standard patterns that emerge time and again, not because of some mystical nature of stock markets or, you know, 
the way in which neurons are structured in the brain. It's just a language that large account players use. Now, if you can learn to talk stock market, then you can be a more successful trader and investor because all you're learning is what are the rules by which large account investors play. And if you can learn those rules and spot the breadcrumbs in the charts in particular, and you can follow just a little bit behind, you can do really well. We then use something called the Wyckoff cycle. This is really important. So this applies to typically over a period of weeks, months, even years, which is if if you, this is not a perfect analogy, this is an idealized motif, but it, it's a good method to use. So if you manage a truly colossal amount of money, then you, you can't make enough money by just buying Microsoft and sitting back and hoping it goes up. Not least because every time you write a check, if you're not careful, the market moves. The thing you're buying, the index of the stock you're buying moves as it does when you sell it. So what you see with truly large accounts is over time accumulation, meaning they'll buy slowly and they'll buy in pieces, uh, small pieces over time, nothing happening quickly. If the stock runs up a bit, they'll maybe sell a little bit to let the air come out of the stock. But you can spot those patterns on a chart. If you use, um, anyone can read our work on the free side of Seeking Health and you'll see it, the volume by price indicators. And you can see as those spike, that's a big gray set of bars on the right-hand side of our charts. As they spike up at the lows in a big liquid stock uh, after a big market sell-off, it's probable that that's large account players accumulating, buying up. And you'll see the stock moving in a horizontal channel over a period of time, weeks, months usually. And you'll then see the stock start to break out. And around that time, so all the way through this accumulation, usually on CNBC, you're being told how terrible that company is or the world is or you know there's a recession or a war or whatever it might be. All of a sudden, when that stock starts to move up through the markup uh, zone, as we call it, which is just borrowed from this Wyckoff uh, motif, miraculously, you know, financial media will be telling you, you know, oh, well, things are looking up for that. And you'll see more often than you might think, these stocks then start to move up quite quickly and uh, eventually reach a place of so-called distribution where you'll see those that volume spike again. And so you can see it in the Tesla chart just now, for instance. So, um, you know, if you look, uh, I have it in front of me. It's, if you if you fire this, the chart up, and we can post this as a, a comment to this uh, podcast when it's posted, there's clearly accumulation um, early this year when the stock was sat between about 150 and about 211, and then distribution started when with the stock is between about 240 and about 280. And so, if you were watching for that, then even on a relatively short term trade over the course of a few weeks or months, you can follow those breadcrumbs and make money from it. So for us, we separate entirely, you know, company and stock behavior. So first of all, is it a good company? You know, if no, then you're just, you're gambling. Nothing wrong with gambling if you're good at it, right? But if yes, you can be investing. And then the question is, when do you buy and when do you sell? And for us, and there's, you know, a million methods of doing this, we claim no genius on this, but our method is try and see what large account players are doing and just follow behind them a little bit. Don't try and be cleverer than them. You don't need to be. Um, because the advantage you have as an individual investor, uh, or even to be honest, a fair-sized hedge fund that isn't a giant insurance company is your volumes don't move the market and theirs do. So you can see their behavior, but you can typically shield yours. And therefore you, you have an advantage, your lack of, um, you know, giant outsized fund is an advantage. And that's our method. Very good. Um, 
Last time you were on, you were talking about Intel and how they had just gotten through the worst quarter of any company that you've reviewed. <laughs> ever, yeah. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. What, uh, what, when, when, what, when what are that? you thinking was, about it now? Well, it's up. <laughs> when was that podcast? <laughs> it was in February, beginning of February. February. All right, okay. So let me just, I've got the Intel chart right here. Okay, so at the end of February, yeah, the stock was at 26. And we were, we called, you'd have to check back in our service, but we were calling by um, very, pretty strongly around that time and slightly before. And um, what's it now? It's at 33 now. So it's up quite nicely. I think Intel, um, in, I think there's two ways to look at Intel. Everyone knows the stock, right? Everyone knows the history. Intel started to make, you know, a, a, a holy show of operations some years ago. As anyone knows that follows the semiconductor industry or, or the stock in particular, um, it, its process manufacturing just hit the skids for, for, for many reasons. Poor management is at the core. And, and they, they missed the move to initially the 10 nanometer process node and then beyond. And they've just fallen further and further and further behind. And that's a problem if you are... You know, one, um, a, a huge market share owner of, of CPU supply. But it's an even bigger problem if you are, you know, the only US-owned semiconductor fabrication company of any scale at a time when semiconductors are pivotal to the battle between the two great powers, the US and China, and when, you know, the other giant in fabrication, TSMC, um, China thinks is a Chinese business. <laughs> no one else thinks it's a Chinese business, thinks it's a Taiwanese business. But China clearly has designs on Taiwan. And so the, the, the slow movement of this battle between the great powers, you know, the, the things to watch here is not the movement of, you know, carrier groups or missile silos. It's the movement of semiconductor fabrication capital. And so Intel, to us, it, it absolutely has to succeed it cannot fail and this is not like um a bank is too big to fail this is you know in the battle for global supremacy semiconductors are to the fore and if the us is to succeed intel must succeed because you can't build um fabrication plants under some other ownership quickly enough with enough accuracy that are trusted by fabulous players fast enough in order to replace intel you can't and so intel has to win so the federal government, in, well, in my opinion, you know, scoop money into Intel for as long as is necessary for it to survive. And so as an investment plan, that's a fantastic investment opportunity because the stock, as you just mentioned, reported what I think we'd said was the worst quarter of any company we'd ever seen ever in decades. Stock went up, you know, because it doesn't, it, at this point, right at this moment, it's not really about the fundamentals at Intel. It's about a strategic battle between the US and China. And the US obviously means to win, so does China, but the US's major uh, chip, pun intended, is Intel. And so that was our very simple investment logic for Intel. I'm long Intel personally, I added to it recently. I think the stock has a great future. I think for what it's worth, the company probably will come right. I think the new CEO is better. I think they understand their problems better. Um, but that's not really the dominant investment thesis. The dominant investment thesis is, there's a cold war going on. Both sides mean to win it. Um, and if you think the US has any chance of winning it, you probably want to own Intel. Were you at all surprised by China coming out with their regulations against the chip makers? Well, I, I would say first and foremost, I, I'm about as far from a China expert as you will find. Um, 
But I would say that I think it's a very hard game for them to play this. You know, the advantage that that China has, of course, is it does not have electoral cycles, which is an advantage. Um, it has a command economy of sorts, which is an advantage. Um, but it, what it doesn't have is the extent of intellectual property base that the US has, you know, despite, you know, many years of playing catch up, it, it's not there yet. Um, and, you know, at least in the last century or so, one of the best setups, if you want to be in conflict with another empire, is having a truly free market capitalistic economy and a, and a liberal, you know, small L um, polity, as in, you know, a, a democracy. And those things turn out to be huge advantages. And China, so it, it it doesn't have a truly free economy. It doesn't have a truly free polity. Uh, it doesn't have the intellectual property. And ultimately, it has less access to capital than does the US. And so it's a, that's a tough spot. That's a hard place from which to win. So I don't really know what their winning moves are. I'm sure there are some. And again, ask a China expert, they'll tell you, and that's not me. But that they make unpredictable moves, I think, is born of the fact that they have, a, in my opinion, a weak hand. Um, they tried a, a very good strategy for them, which is, you know, invite U.S. capital over, invite U.S. intellectual property over, you know, attempt to assimilate some of that, you know, with some success, has to be said. The U.S. has, you know, opened its eyes to that and pulled back under two administrations now. Um, I'm not sure what China's next move is. I'm not sure they're sure either. So, yeah, that they make these unpredictable moves, I think, is a function of, mm -hmm. well, what is the winning play from where they are? Um, it, it could be the old-fashioned one of, well, if you wait a couple of centuries, then most empires destroy themselves. You know, it's happened in every country in Europe. I'm English, as you can hear, um, at, at least by passport, um, if not by uh, genes. Uh, and so, you know, the British Empire spectacularly collapsed under its own um, self-satisfaction. Self um, and there's every possibility that the US will do that. Well, it's not going to happen next year or the year after, and pr probably not the next 50 years. So what does China do? It either waits, you know, 100, 200 years, and that might be a good play, um, or it tries to accelerate it somehow. And I'm, I'm not sure what that accelerant is. But again, you should ask, ask a China expert. And ETFs? How, what's your approach with ETFs? So we do two things with ETFs. Um, and, and again, this is all within our Growth Investor Pro service. The, the name Growth Investor Pro is a little bit misleading because we do cover things like defense, space, telecom. Um, we cover the Dow, you know, those, those sorts of things. So the, the, the name's a bit misleading. Um, we we do two things with ETFs. So first of all, we look at the SPDR sector ETFs. You know, so XLK, XLY, XLC, all of these, the the, the component parts of the S and P, for want of a better term. And we use those to first of all come up with um, investment ideas in the ETFs themselves on that rotation basis. Which is, you know, if uh, if if you look right now, XL. Uh, F, the financial uh, ETF, has been out of favor for some time. It's likely to move up. And that's one of the things that drew our attention to the the, the, the bank single stock ideas. Um, if you did the same analysis uh, nine months ago, you'd be saying, well, XLK, the, the tech ETF, is looking destroyed, as is XLC, as is XLY. So C being uh, com services, that's things like AT&T, Meta Platforms, and XLY, consumer discretionary, which is uh, Tesla, Amazon, things like that. And so if you look at the the, the sector ETFs that are on the floor, you know, and, and digging into the basement, they're usually pretty compelling places to, one, 
start to accumulate the ETF themselves. It, you know, again, the big liquid ones. I mean, there are obviously there is all sorts of weird and wonderful ETFs holding tiny, weird and wonderful liquid stocks. That's great. You know, you can make lots of money doing that, but that's that's not our focus. Our focus is on the big liquid ones. Um, and then also, if you see the big sector ETF starting to behave in a certain way, you can then use that as a signpost to go look for single stock opportunities. So there's that, the sector rotation analysis we look at. And then the other thing we do is um, we use the uh, the index ETFs. So that's, you know, the QQQ, uh, the SPY, uh, the DIA, IWM. We use those, those to generate standalone um, long and short trading opportunities. Now, this isn't, you know, for everyone's taste, not everyone that subscribes to our service uses this. Many don't, but some are, you know, some have used it a lot. And so w we tend to chart those out really carefully, you know, every every day. And, you know, here in our offices, you know, we look at them 20 times a day and come up with long and short index ETF ideas, usually using the, the three times levered long and short uh, in the index ETFs as hedged pairs. So in other words, if you were wanting to trade the NASDAQ, we would look at TQQ as the long and SQQ as the short. We often have hedged opportunities where we'll hold both at the same time. Um, the idea being that as, as one moves up, try and cash out on the long, and as it moves down, try and cash out on the short. And that's that's not, that, that's not an adjunct to the work we do. Uh, we do pretty well at it, but it's it's fairly time intensive and it's not something that all of our subscribers like to do, but we do it a lot. And the benefit that it brings across the service is a laser focus from us on what what indices are doing. So we look really closely at um, e each of the indices and the futures, you know, hour by hour, minute by minute. And that can tell you a lot about what's going to happen in some single stock names. So if you know, for instance, the, the NASDAQ and the S&P are both running up to um, key resistance levels, then there's a good probability that if you own uh, high beta stocks, then if the NASDAQ's hitting its head on resistance, it's likely to sell off a little bit in the next week or two, then probably those high beta names are going to sell off more. So depending on where you're positioned, you may want to take profits, or if you're waiting to buy into them, you might think, well, a better opportunity will come along in a week or two. So we use ETFs both for themselves and also as signposts for the single stocks that, that we cover. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.